Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, uh, our series on the movies nominated for Best Picture in 1975. 75's movies, 76 ceremony, a distinction that I am already tired of making. But today's our third episode where we're talking about Jaws. Ever heard of it? Ken, when did you first see Jaws? I've been watching Jaws, Jaws for two and a half decades, uh, probably at least once a year. Uh, it pleases me to no end, and there's absolutely no time I've watched this film and haven't found something else to fixate my enjoy my personal enjoyment on. Every time I find something new. How many viewings do you think you're up to? I've probably watched the film at least, uh, like I said, at least once a year. Plus? So, Oh, yeah. We're, we're talking probably at least 30, 35 times. Oof. TJ, when, when did you first see it, if you can remember? Uh, many, many moons ago. I was I was a young lad, and when I was younger, I was really obsessed with like lists, and so I had mm. these two books that were like one of them was like the history of the Academy Awards by year, and another one was like the, called like the one hundred one greatest movies or whatever, and so I'd kind of like read through that and then try to watch these movies if they were age appropriate, and I also watched the AFI like countdowns, and this was on for like quotes, American films, like top one hundred scares or whatever, and I was like, I need to see this Jaws movie, so I was probably like eight. But I don't really know for sure. Were you also like eight or nine when you saw Sons of the Lambs? Yeah, uh, and and yeah, Psycho. Right. Like right Psycho. around that time, I was uh, yep. like, it's time to watch scary movies. Um, for me, AFI did almost the same thing. We, my, I remember watching that with my parents because they did the first one like ninety seven, ninety eight, and every year for a decade they did a new list. And yeah, I'd watch those with my parents, and if I hadn't seen something, my parents would be like, oh, we need to show you that. It's funny you mentioned what was uh, – you'd go through the list and find the ones that were age-appropriate, TJ, because I feel like age-appropriate meant something different in 1975, you know, pre-PG-13 oh, yeah. rating. Yes. I was thinking about that, how, like – I mean, it took about a decade after this movie to create the PG-13 rating, but, like, Jaws being rated PG is wild to me. It remains wild to me. Yeah, I taught later. this one year in my film class, um, and it, it taught really well, but – Whenever certain things would happen, I, I'd like put on my Mark Cummings and be like, rate a PG, everybody, rate a PG reminder, you know, <laughs> because it's like, I, I don't know that it should be R, but like, there, oh, there's some yeah, gnarly, gnarly stuff in this movie. It definitely needs, it definitely needs an additional warning. Uh, there's a, throughout the first anecdote of the episode, I guess, but there's a story that Steven Spielberg was once lying on a beach uh, just a couple of years later. And this woman walked up with her her son, who was terrified to go swimming in the ocean. It was in the Los Angeles area. She noticed him, came up and said, are you Steven Spielberg? He said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. She you looked bastard. At him. She looked at him and goes, she goes, tell him it's okay to go out there. My husband <laughs> took him to see your movie, and now he won't go into the ocean. Mm. And Spielberg, Spielberg told, <laughs> looked at the kid and said, well, I can't really lie. It's not perfectly safe. <laughs> Which is the greatest response to the situation I think is imaginable. But yes, kids, little kids, like the, he said the kid was like seven, eight years old at the time. And this was a couple years removed or something like that. It, yeah. But like you talk about the, the violence in this and whether it should be rated R. I can't think of a movie that has a more bloody death for the death of a child. Like a 10 year old mm, dies in this yeah. in extremely bloody fashion. And like you don't see that. And, Especially in things that aren't rated R. And how much, or at all even. how much like heavy lifting people's reactions do to because like when Hooper sees uh, Christine's body, and he, yes. you know, his reaction, but also his description. So you don't really see yeah. her remains there. But if you listen to what he's describing, um, it's, it's it's gnarly. Yeah, it's very gnarly. Yeah, it's yeah. horrifying. 
And the same with like the like I guess the cop or whatever who discovers her body on the beach. He like we see his reaction to we, we get a brief glimpse of like her arm coming out of the sand covered in crabs and stuff, but mm-hmm. we see his reaction first where he like collapses and like nearly vomits. Well, fi- funny you should mention that. In the book, they're very clear that th- all three of them vomit. Mm-hmm. There is there is no I think uh, better example as you said when when Dreyfus is in the the medical examiner's office, his initial like intake of breath says it all. Like anything he's about to say thereafter, you think to yourself, this guy's an expert. He's you assume have seen he's seen shark attack victims before, and whatever he's sharks. looking at, literally is he's he's in he's in sharks. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, yeah. that's what Mrs. Brody. My husband tells me you're in sharks. That's correct. But and the way he asked the way he asked for a glass of water is a great detail too. Right yeah. at the start of that. Um, yeah. At the start of that uh, medical examination thing. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um. Well, let's let's get into the the background of the movie. Before we do that, uh, quick programming note from last week. Uh, TJ, did you said the producers uh, emailed in to give us a correction after last week's. Uh, uh, it, Dog afternoon show? it was a note hot off the desk. I've got a hair in a sticky note. Okay, lay it on me. Uh, we mistakenly said that Al Pacino was nominated for Best Actor four years in a row. Um, I'm not going to point fingers, but I think Ken mistakenly I said did. Yeah, it yeah. Okay, I, okay, hold I, on. I gotta, this is a we endeavor here. This is a collective. <laughs> no, um, I'll take this one. I, I I will not own your mistakes. I felt I felt guilty as soon as you texted me about this. I wanted to close the beach, and you guys wanted to leave it open. Because also, That's we all know, I will say we know better, and we did not. I, I totally wasn't thinking about it, because we've had, I think, a discussion in private before well, and, about how, and, how weird it is that Pacino wasn't nominated for Best Actor that year for, fairness, for The Godfather. Yeah, in fairness. So, yeah, with The Godfather's first nomination, it was a supporting actor nomination, because Brando ran as actor and won. Um, and Pacino famously boycotted the op. They both did. Brando for the Native American representation, and then Pacino because he was pissed about the category fraud. He was like, I have the most screen time in this. I'm the lead actor. And he's right. But man, if they boycotted for category fraud now, half the Dolby <laughs> Theater would be empty. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about it in, if we get to the 1973 films. But man, all-time acceptance speech, Brando sending that woman up in his stead. Uh, that we could that's an episode itself just talking about that acceptance speech i feel like it's mm. and then wild. and then john yeah. wayne's like racist tirade he had to be about held, it yeah he had, uh-huh. to be held yeah. he had to be held back yeah. uh, in the wings of the dolby or i don't know if it was the dolby back then i don't know where they were at. Yeah. um but thank you for that uh correction also like i feel like i would have like if had he been nominated for best actor four years in a row i feel like that's really like a fact that i would know that that's a fact that i would know offhand and the fact that i didn't like the fact that you were telling that information for the first time should have like clued me into like is that true? But I guess the 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 takeaway though is he was nominated four years in a row for his performances, and one and in all four, oh, four he's he is arguably the lead or co lead in all four films. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then when he didn't win for four years in a row, he said to the Academy, "I'm going to take a flamethrower to this place." Direct quote. Hmm. That's what. That's how he got Scarface. That's that's from Scent of a Woman, I'm guys. Assuming. That's that's the movie he won his Oscar for. Is a quote from. Scent of a Woman, directed by Martin Brest, 1992, co-starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. About um, as exciting as your description. <laughs> I like the movie. Uh, so Jaws. Let's talk about Jaws. We're here to talk about Jaws, not about Al Pacino's history with the Academy Awards. Um, Jaws was a book before it was a movie. It was a novel by Peter Benchley that came out in 1973. But uh, the film rights were bought for the book before the book was even published. 
Um, I was just reading this morning that producer David Brown came across a write-up of a write-up about Peter Benchley's book in Cosmo of all magazines, which was edited by David Brown's then wife Helen Gurley Brown. And uh, David Brown's producing partner Richard Zanuck apparently independently read the same article at the same time, so they were both like, "Hey, we should option this book." Is it surprising to you guys that Jaws was brought to the screen because of an article in Cosmo? I think I'm more shocked. That's very surprising to me. I'm more shocked that, that David Brown doesn't read his wife's stuff before she publishes it, to be honest. <laughs> but, but not to throw him under the bus. David, I asked you to read that three weeks ago. Now you want to make a movie? I don't know what she sounds like. I'm just guessing that's what it was. Yeah. That's, that, is the, that is the birth of Jaws <laughs> as a film right there. <laughs> Yes. But uh, so uh, Brown and Zanuck, Richard Zanuck and David Brown bought the film rights in 1973 before the book was even published for a whopping $175,000, which is around a million dollars today. And given what the box office ultimately ended up being, that was probably a pretty good investment on their part. Uh, Young Steven Spielberg was 26 when they made this. He was not their first or second choice for directing. Uh, I can't remember the name. It was two guys I never heard of who were their first two choices. But apparently uh, Spielberg had just made um, Children Express for Brown and Zanuck. And so he was just in their office, you know, doing whatever guys did in the 70s in people's offices. And he saw a copy of the book on one of their desks. Cocaine. <laughs> uh, your words, not mine. I'm not going to be libelous or slanderous. Um, he saw a copy of the book in one of their offices. And uh, I don't know if he, like, had already read it or, like, asked to read it. But regardless, he read it and had a take, had a pitch, and, and pitched himself. And they're like, yeah, sure. Let's give this young Steven guy a shot. I made a quick note, like, good thing he didn't read it before he pitched it, because to quote Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, that is one great big pile of shit. So, TJ, I think you're the only one of the three of us who's read the book, Peter Benchley's book. And I, and I just read it within the last, like, nine or ten days um, in preparation I think I actually just this. got it from the library. I just got it from the library on, like, my Kindle, and then I didn't even open it. I didn't. You know, I intended to read it before this, but I'm a bad podcast host. And do my homework. Don't. So I was going to say, don't. Okay. TJ really, kind of warned us really off. Really not of good. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, we we stay do tuned. Have, uh, a, TJ's literature corner is coming up later in this episode, where TJ will break down uh, the Peter Benchley book. But uh, regardless, um, the other thing I read in the in like the production or the pre-production stuff of this movie that really kind of made me laugh was that they originally gave them a 55-day production schedule. Uh, specifically so they could avoid a impending contract renegotiation with SAG. They didn't want to, like, run the risk of, that SAG actors would be on strike, so they tried to set the film's production schedule such that they would avoid any potential strike. In addition to that, uh, they hired uh, the novelist Peter Bentley to write the script because there was a either impending or ongoing strike from the Writers Guild, and Peter Benchley was not a member of the Writers Guild. So uh, a lot of the production of this movie was just to work around the Hollywood unions, which was funny to me, especially given, like, the, the you know, themes. Well, it's the, yeah, it's the idea that they're shirking the, the sort of the working class, if you will, if you tie, if you often, we often yeah. tie unions yeah. to working or the very least middle class, as opposed to the wealthy, who usually are the managers. Um, yes, this film is certainly touching, at least having a, at least have, participating in the conversation about the haves and the, between the haves and the have-nots and their relationship with one another. The lifeguards in, in on a midi island should have unionized, I think, and then they could have, you know, really closed the beaches because they wouldn't have lifeguards. On that point, while we're talking about... That's, that's lesson here. We're talking about the introduction, and uh, so I'm just going to jump in. You're talking about the 55-day shoot. I love the yeah. fact that they thought 
they could get it done in that shorter period of time, given the fact that Spielberg was so committed to doing this on the actual Atlantic. He didn't want to do it on the soundstage or on the back lot at Universal. And the idea that, yeah, we're going to start it up. May 1st was the starting date uh, for the shoot on Martha's Vineyard, and the goal was to be done by July. Instead, it didn't wrap until October. And the other thing is that uh, Carl Gottlieb was brought in for, apparently just brought in for a one-week dialogue polish, just to like you know work on script for a week. But he ended up rewriting most of the script, including completing scenes the night before they were to be shot. And he is ultimately the main credited screenwriter on the movie. Who actually is credited? It is credited to... And Peter Benchley. Uh, Peter Benchley, the novelist, and Carl Gottlieb. Peter Benchley, I think, wrote three drafts of the script, and then was then you know a revolving door of writers came in after him, and Carl Gottlieb just contributed the most, I guess. I think um I think I read that part of Spielberg's pitch was to kind of do away with a novel for the first two acts, and then kind of come back to the novel for the third act when they're on the boat. Does that square away with your experience reading the, reading the book, TJ? Uh, it does. The so the first scene and the first chapter are very nearly identical except that like the people were in a house um and then the business on the boat is quite similar but in the novel they don't get to the boat until like page it's part three so it's like page 220 or 230 out of 310 whereas in the film it's the midpoint is going on the water um yeah that, that was, so that's one thing i wanted to comment on and we can talk about this later but like there are two things Okay, hold on. Back up. <laughs> I, I didn't get to say that I have not seen this movie as, nearly as often as you guys have or as many times as you guys have or uh, from an early age as you guys have. I didn't see it until after college. I think I probably only see it start to finish maybe three or four times. Um, so, like, it, a lot of stuff is still new to me. Unlike with well, Ken said, you, you know, you see new things every time. But that's, that's one thing that's um, – every time I watch it, I'm surprised by stuff. One of which is how early they get on the boat. Because, like, in my head – when I think about the movie, I think, oh, yeah, them on the boat, the three of them on the boat is like the third act. And it's not. There's still like 50 plus minutes left. It's like a little past the midpoint of the runtime, but like there's still 50 plus minutes left when they get on the boat. And um, but then also like once you do hit the third act, like probably around the time that they, you know, compare scars and he tells the story of the Indianapolis, like you blink and the movie's over. The last half hour flies by uh, in this. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Continue, continue your your thought. No, not at all. And, and just um, the the part three of the book and the second half of the movie are quite similar, except for some character dynamics we'll get into later. And then the ending um, is also very very different um, for reasons that Benchley's trying to make allusions to Moby Dick that are clunky as hell. And uh, mm. again, more on that later. But nearly like every change from the book to the movie was like way better for the movie except i'm gonna argue one i didn't actually look up the box office for this because i just knew that it was you know it was the biggest hit it was the highest grosser of all time at the time right yes for it's the set the new years. records yeah what was the previous so i okay so i know that jaws was the highest gross movie of all time star wars beat it then et beat that correct and then uh what bdt was it jurassic, jurassic, park? Park. jurassic park bdt didn't it? yes yeah and then and then titanic and then Avatar. Avatar. Kind of been, yes, Spielberg. Yeah. Spielberg. Trading. Spielberg did set the record though in three three consecutive decades. Three separate times. Yeah. yeah. What was it before Jaws? Do we know? I don't know offhand. What, what Probably Gone Jaws? with the Wind. I, I would believe. Probably, I yeah. I think it may have. Yeah, it may have been. Or uh, actually, if no. You, I believe the Sound of Music. If you I adjust for inflation, Gone with yes. the Wind is still technically the king. It sold the most tickets. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like you know, 
this is pre-VCR. Jaws is pre-VCR, so like any you know movies from the 30s like that are just re-released constantly. So they, true, you know, true. But even get, you know they get some. To TJ's point, though, they like the the longer we go in history, if you go way back, movies would play in, on the screens for months and months, if not a full year, and it was so cheap. As an, just as an aside, my grandmother, for example, saw Gone with the Wind eight times in theaters. That's a really long, long film. But people just went that often. That's all they did. So like they did the thirty-two hours of her life, she like a spent day and a half of her life was in the theater watching Gone watching, with the Wind. Yes, she and her friends and her sister they they watched Gone with the Wind over and over again, and that's where all that money came from. So just for inflation, yeah, it's like three billion dollars in yeah. revenue or something. Well, I'm looking up now. Um, it, it it's it's listed box office is four hundred and twelve million dollars in 1975, which I think is around two point two billion. In 2022 dollars thereabouts, mm. according to my cursory Google search, so uh, it made some money. It was a hit. Uh, Ken, you mentioned in in the outlines that this created the term blockbuster, right? It, that term did not exist before Jaws. Is that it, right? It's the I, I was calling it the birth of the blockbuster because this is the first real summer hit in which it it seemed to be an event, which is how they intended it. Uh, the 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 backstory and TJ, we can talk in a moment about the the marketing behind the film, but. Chair, uh, Universal's chair, Lou Wasserman, he actually, at some point after the film was released, halved the number of theaters it was showing in because he wanted it to be such an event. He specifically said, I want people in Palm Springs. Great scarcity. Yeah. Right. He wanted people in Palm Springs to have to come to L.A. because it was an event film. They'd have to, oh. it, would, it, would, it would result in lineups outside the theater, which is what happened. But lineups increase interest, which increases sales. Because oh, well, if that yeah, many people are standing, yeah, the term blockbusters, up, people lined up around the block. That's exactly. what the term blockbuster came from. Oh, I, th- I thought they named it after the rental stores. <laughs> I thought so too. I was really confused when I read that. I'm like, I don't think that's correct because you know, th- there's obviously the term came from the the rental store. Yeah, it's a shame they need to get their facts straight. Um, and I also think that like I, I read that summer summer to your point, Ken. Summer wasn't a big time for releases because people went outside. You know, people went and touched grass. Imagine so they that didn't, they didn't go to the movies as much. I know is yeah. that wild. And so the idea of like people like flocking to the theaters during the summer was a, a novel concept, and yet they did for Jaws, which leads me to the question: Why was this such a big hit? Why was this the highest grossing movie of all time? Like, it's great. It's really great. It's a good movie. It holds up, you know, forty five years later. But like, what was it about it? In 1975. I don't have an answer. Just, uh, just, I'm going to set this up. TJ, you can take it from me in a minute. To set this up, think pre-1975. Most of the time, people are watching trailers only when they're going to the movie theater. So if you're seeing a preview for some upcoming or yet-to-be-released film, you're most likely going to catch it when you're in the cinema watching something else. Jaws changed that because Universal decided we're going to spend a small fortune just just inundating people at home on the television with advertising they got they yeah, got you said it in the you said in the outline that they spent two and a half million dollars on tv advertising yeah tj you the found budget was th- the movie's budget was three and a half million yeah it's tj like you know i think you found that number and it's it's believable because they really did it, it that's what drew people to this film initially because i think like we were talking about earlier the book's not that old and the book sales were helped along by the movie. Now, granted, this film was also teased far enough in advance because Universal, again, was trying to kind of play that event film. Like, this is going to be something we want people to come see. 
And so they had snippets and they were creating trailers long before the film was actually finished with post-production. They wanted people to know about this film coming ahead of time. And it worked because everybody, I mean, you ask people who were alive at the time, they can still hear the narration of the trailer. The deep, there's this deep, the, the, the gentleman, and I can't think of his name now, but the gentleman who's doing the narration, the, the, the over, the In a world where sharks are attacking people offshore. It wasn't, it wasn't the in a world guy, but the gentleman they did get, he actually fought, they wanted a higher pitched voice. He's like, no, no, trust me, I know what you want. You have to go under and let the, let the picture control, let the images control. In a world where there's sharks. (laughs) That's what they wanted? Yeah. Okay. So, yes. uh, a lot of, uh, and this is this the answer to this. We're gonna try to unfold over the next three and a half hours. But um, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, Let's it, get it, a bath and brick now. Yeah, um, I, I have diapers on personally, which brings us to our next sponsor, <laughs> Depends. When you need to do a four-hour podcast, trust Depends. Okay, uh, but a lot of people say like, oh, it's the the shark thing, right? And certainly there has has been just an onslaught of shark movies since. A quick look at a very suspect list on IMDb uh, titled All Shark Movies, all caps on the mm. all. There's 183 mm. movies, nine of which came before Jaws. So that tells you there's about 170 plus shark movies made afterward. Now, looking through this list, they listed the Dark Waters movie with Mark Ruffalo, which is not about sharks, uh, in there. So no. this, li- this list is suspect. But it's just, about insurance companies. Yeah. Real estate sharks. Yeah, the real sharks. Uh, yeah. But like there's Orca, the shark hunter. There's let me let me read some of these. Devilfish. Okay. Mm. Sounds fantastic. Um there's one called just Shark Attack. Of course, Deep Blue Sea, Megalodon, Shark Man, Red Water. Okay. Do they have Shark Boy and Lava Girl from the Spy Kids franchise listed among here? Uh, you, th- that's correct. The Adventures of Shark Boy they, and Lava Girl 3D is they listed. They do? Oh, you bet. Oh, I was kidding. Uh, Taylor Lautner, man. Into the Blue is listed. The uh, uh, Paul Walker, Jessica Alba vehicle, which I'm not sure if there's sharks in that. Um, but there's some other good ones. <laughs> Eagle versus Shark. Not about sharks that way. Shark and Venice. Uh, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. The point you're making, the point you're making, is that sharks exploded in the pop cultural consciousness after the movie. Is that the point you're making? Yes, or but just trying to. Oh, okay, you got to hear more of these. Mega Shark okay. versus Crocosaurus. <laughs> okay. Uh huh. Um, okay. You can cut this later if you want. Super Shark, Snow I'm Shark, cut this later. Sand okay. Sharks. Okay. 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 It gets better. Do we have Shark Week on Discovery without Jaws? No, I don't think so. I don't. I, I can't imagine. Shark I can't imagine women's prison massacre. <laughs> I'm serious. We need to be done with this part. Okay, we've we've run the bit in the ground. Keep going, Ken. I don't think there's an obsession among people with sharks without jaws. It just doesn't happen. Like the fact that we now dedicate every year at least a full week on Discovery Channel. If not more, sometimes other... It's really gone downhill, though, in the last decade. I will say that. I used to love Shark Week in, like, grade school and high school. It kind of sucks now, but... I, that's, I'll that's be honest, despite my love for this film, I never I never really bought into the Shark Week thing. But I think now Animal Planet also does shark-related stuff sometime in the summer. Sure. The point being, But all the stuff is, like... Yeah, it's, it's, it's all a reaction to Jaws. People just... The mer- yeah, it's not... It's not the cause of why Jaws was popular. It's a reaction to the popularity. So, like, I still don't really know what made it so popular. Why was this the highest-grossing movie of all time? I guess the marketing. 
the marketing yeah, like, how they and merchandising. To, they, how do they know to like dump that much money into the marketing though? You know? Well, they wanted to sell a lot it. of movies. They they yeah, but like it worked. It worked. How, how, I don't know. It's the seventies. People. This. The idea that the idea that you've got some new thriller. You're not sure how much of it will be a horror film, which their horror films are becoming quite popular in the mid seventies. Um, we're, we're, we're approaching kind of the Halloween and alien era. The Renaissance. Got, yeah. Right. The slasher Renaissance. Yeah. Um, so this film kind of fits into like the, the time period in the zeitgeist. People are interested in this type of film and universal knew how to do the marketing just right. Give people just enough, just snippets, just kind of a feel for what to expect, but leave them Jeez. wondering. Yeah. Leave them wondering what is this actually about? What it will what will it involve? And suddenly you've got people showing up to the theater, and when they do, they are legitimately surprised, shocked, and ex- just pleased to no end. Yeah, it helps that it's good. Yeah, it helps that the movie's really good. Like that's part of it, but they still got to get asses seized in the first place. And I think this is something that is also distinct to the success of Spielberg's like blockbuster films. Which I think his blockbuster films are better than the films where he like tries to be serious and tries to make adult films. I think he fumbles those big time. But his, his in my eyes, his two best films are Jaws and Jurassic Park. And the reason why is they involve uh, floating signifiers that allow for the application of different intentions. So not only is it really entertaining, but you get a sense that it's speaking to something to the contemporary American moment, but... It's not really um, explicit. And I, I think Spielberg handles myth and metaphor a whole lot better symbol when he doesn't try to engage with it. When you just throw something out there where a lot of people can use, um, can, can use the available metaphor to apply it to their own thing rather than him trying to put some sort of like political meaning on it. Mm-hmm. And I think those films for him are a lot because I I, I don't think he can handle. Um, well, it's the timeless. More it's it's the timeless films. nature. It's the timeless nature of his films. He's leaving it to the audience, no matter when they're watching it, to interpret as they will. And the fact that you can literally make connections with things, but, even if but the, I don't think that's the, intentional. I think it, it it's a unique joining of like what is part of the the skeptical of the um, sorry the spectacle of the american moment i don't think he's actually like trying to do that on purpose i think to a degree it is because we'll, and we can talk more about this the film is is literally being released as all of these in 1975 are we're in the midst of watergate or this is the summer in which nixon's not going to be present or excuse me uh He's yeah. already gone. Yeah, he's actually he's already gone. But, he was on August 74. Right. So we're talking about in Watergate is still hanging over distrust in, in, within uh, of the, the government, of authority. That's definitely playing into this film. But yeah, he's not making it overt. Well, hold on. Like, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But like, what I think TJ is saying is that like, it, it is maybe spectacle first. Or at the very least, you can enjoy it on a spectacle level, as people clearly have, both at Jurassic Park and Jaws. But there are a lot of things to dig into that are less overt it's 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 spectacle first commentary second but there is plenty of commentary and but but the success about that the success of that is because commentary is like it's opened up but it's not applied Mm -hmm. yeah it's there are breadcrumbs you know and like 
I think for a modern example is like look at look at the first Jurassic Park versus any anything in the Jurassic World franchise, which is spectacle only and remo- removes any aspect of commentary or even character for that matter. But like that, my favorite scenes in Jurassic Park are like when they're discussing when they're at the at the lunch table discussing, um, you know, the ethics of what they're doing and that kind of thing, and like. That being there is very important. And I think that's part of why Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think one of the better movies the last 30 years. But you look like you disagree, TJ. Well, no, I think those are similar. But Jurassic Park does interpret itself a little bit more than Jaws does. And it does, even yes. I, I know you were just speaking, like using figurative language. But I think to, to make my point, it's important that like it's not even leaving breadcrumbs because breadcrumbs go somewhere. Um, it's just going, hey, hmm, shark, this seems like it means something. And I don't think Spielberg has any idea what it means. But the, the... I'm not even talking about the meaning of the shark. I'm talking about the sociological, the sociological response to the shark. This movie is not just about shark attacks. It's about a community's response to shark attacks, which is the things you can apply to a broader sociopolitical moment in the United States. Well, the, yeah. shark, the shark itself, though, has, has uh, interpretive value. I know, I know, but there's things beyond just the interpretive value of the shark too that make this movie interesting beyond chomp chomp people get eaten. You know? Well, that was my point about my my litany of shark movies is none of the rest of those had any anywhere near the success that this movie did. So it's not really about sharks. Well, you have in the outline that the shark is a metaphor for a number of things. Do you want to get into that now? Well, Let's we can, it. but I think it might be better to get more to the things kind of the nuts and bolts of perhaps screenplay editing performances before we get to okay. heavy well, interpretation. If we're going to talk about nuts and bolts, then we've got to talk about John Williams. I think he's probably the first thing we need to talk about. Um, I thought it was interesting that in the opening credits, it you know uh, gives Richard Dreyfuss, uh, Robert Shaw, and um, Roy, Roy, Scheider. Roy Schneider. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, excuse me. And then it gives a few supporting character, uh, their names appear on screen. And then the first name we appear that, was, that appears on screen that's not an actor is music by John Williams. And I thought that was interesting because, like, normally I feel like you get a casting director first or you get a production designer first. Like, it's not normally the composer being the first person billed after the cast. But in this case, it feels appropriate. Um, I posed the question in the outline, how much of the success of this movie and the effect of this of this movie is due to John Williams? And my answer is it cannot be measured how much his contribute, how much he contributed to this and its effectiveness. Um, the most iconic piece of movie music of all time, arguably. You know, this and Psycho probably are up there. What, what and Star doing? Wars. Again, John Williams, Jaws, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, E.T. Like, this is the first time we get John Williams doing what we now think of as a John Williams score. Before now, he's done other films. In the 60s, he was known as Johnny Williams. He won an Oscar for uh, adapting uh, Fiddler on the Roof a few years before this. He's already an accomplished yeah, composer. I, I... I looked at his filmography. I looked at his filmography because I, I wasn't sure if he'd like come out of nowhere with Jaws, but he yeah he'd been working steadily for like twenty years. Like he actually worked with like some very talented directors. I just like didn't realize that was him. It was the first time I was aware of. Him. In fact, the the year that the the summer that Jaws is released in nineteen seventy five, Williams is working on Alfred Hitchcock's last movie. He's mm. he's accomplished. He has connections. People respect him. Um, the fact is, Spielberg trusted the guy, and he trusted him enough. That when he went to visit Williams and Williams basically played him that that kind of alternating and accelerating back and forth between, I think it's uh, an uh, E and F, 
It's Donna, Donna. Williams is described as I think it's Donna, an e, the E and the F. When he first played it, Spielberg's reaction was, "That's it," and Williams <laughs> looked at him and goes, yeah. "That's all you'll need," and he's right. Yep. There's a reason why Spielberg has credited Williams for seeing seeing a film and the the totality of a film better than directors. He can watch the film yeah. and he knows he knows what the director is trying to do better than the director. Normally, uh, directors submit a, a cut and edit to their composer, and then the composer has to conduct the music in time with the edit. And if you tour any film studio, they will show you the composing room, and there's a big white screen behind all the chairs of the music players, and like they usually have the film playing as they record it, and he's conducting along with the movie. John Williams and Sp- Steven Spielberg famously do it the opposite way, where... Uh, Williams will give him music, and then Spielberg will cut his movies in time with Williams' music because he trusts him that much as a collaborator, which is extremely rare, but very telling. And uh, <laughs> the other thing, I just wanted to throw this out there as a piece of trivia, is John Williams was conducting the orchestra at the Oscars in 1976, so he had to like hop out of the pit to accept his Oscar for best score for this movie and then quickly go back down to the pit to continue conducting, which that was funny. Uh, TJ, anything on John Williams? Jaws? Uh good score anything beyond that <laughs> um yeah just one quick thing which is that obviously there's the iconic thing that we can all sort of reproduce the light motif i think also the kind of like jaunty seafaring stuff when they get on the boat is also really yeah. really mm-hmm. good that's all i have yes when the shark blows up but when, when the shark blows up and like you, the the body of the shark kind of slowly gently falls and like mm-hmm. the the whimsical music after they've they've done it and when the and when there's not music like the death of quint Knowing yeah. when not to, right. Well, that's the the great composers, the great musicians will tell you that it's also knowing not, you know, when not to have music playing. And in this case, when he is using it, he's using it carefully and it is completely changing and elevating the scenes in which the music is playing. For example, when you get the, the leitmotif coming back, uh, particularly I'm thinking of the scene with the two guys on a dock with the the one guy's wife's holiday roast or whatever roast yeah it's just a scene with two guys on a dock the dock collapses they end up in the water and they're trying to outrun the collapsed dock you don't see the shark yeah, one of them ends up in the water well they both they both end up in the water the other guy just slides off right in front of it and climbs back out uh, the other guy goes for a ride on the collapsed dock before well, he gets he gets taken out yes the dock gets pulled out he's correct on the dock that gets pulled out yeah, yeah, yeah. he's got to outrun the, the collapsed dock that's it it's just a moving it's a floating piece of wood moving rather quickly in, at dusk, and these two bozos on the dock. That's it. But suddenly you add the music, and you have an extra character in the scene. You have, And yeah. this scene is becomes one of the most terrifying in the movie. Well, now's the time that we, you know, I feel like this is a pretty well-known piece of trivia, that, like, the shark didn't work. Uh, their mechanical shark didn't work very well, so to work around that, they just didn't show the shark, as, or they showed as little as possible, and that ended up making it... 10 times scarier and john williams score does a ton of heavy lifting there uh as we mentioned the opening credits uh that's where we first hear that donna 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 and it's just like the pov of the shark swimming around and like it's really terrifying and like the combination of the absence of actually showing the monster and having the motif for the monster really really works really well um i think i i think i i i marked in my notes somewhere i think that uh we don't get our first real look at the shark until an hour and two minutes in. Yeah, it, and that's during the uh, attack in the pond. That's correct. Yeah, there's the aerial shot above the uh, the guy in the pond who's who's 
gets attacked yeah, when the kids yeah, are there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you get the aerial shot, and that's the first time you see, you kind of get an idea of the length of the shark, but you actually see the coloring and the outline of it. Well, we, we see, like, some fins spinning around when when Alex Kinter dies, the 10-year-old. Um, yeah, but like the, the, the fins, in a lot of those the, scenes, though, the fins aren't actually attached to the mechanical shark. They're actually yeah, you, just you fins. Yeah, you don't get a good look, yeah. Um, and there's, I think there's something also, like, that needs to be stated about the disturbingness of the dislocation of that camera POV, which is not just a way of shooting around the shark, but that puts the audience from the very first shot of the movie into the complicity of the killer. Um, yeah. And the killer that's monstrous, the killer that's demonic, the killer that's, you know, that whatever. John Carpenter right? borrows for the opening scene of Halloween, you know, three years later, very famously. Uh, uh, also uh, due to budget constraints, but. Well, it seems it seems very sort of like Hitchcock-y. It's, it, mm-hmm. it has a lot to do with Peeping Tom. You know, it's, it's um, been used in other places as well. But what, just in doing that, it's, uh, I think that's something that also sort of like uh, subconsciously unsettles us early on. And also, you just mentioned Peeping Tom, the fact of, like, that POV shot of the shark comes up on naked Chrissy swimming in the opening scene, you know, mm-hmm. up from below. Uh, mm-hmm. A little... Perverted is the wrong word, but... Well, no, perverted. no, perverted. I mean, even look at... Sorry, you can't see it now, but the front of the book was the same as the front of the uh, poster. Of, a shark coming film. up underneath a female swimmer, yeah. And one way of interpreting the shark, and this is borrowing from the discourse around Moby Dick as well, uh, it's phallic. So there is something mm-hmm. that's uh, psychosexually suggesting rape uh, well, sure. within the, that first scene as well. One of the interpretations of, of the shark in the film is that it represents the, set of, the sexual predatory behavior or um, basically, as you said, sexual attacks on women, just the sexualized nature of society at the time and kind of the threat that comes with it. I mean, it's it's weird, but the, religious organizations actually liked this movie because... I was, I was just going to say, the opening scene, like, is it like a little, you know... The, the horror movie trope is you punish people who have sex or act immorally. Is the is the opening scene doing that? Because, like, the guy who passes out and doesn't go skinny dipping ends up surviving. And the hussy, Chrissy the hussy, who peels her clothes off and goes in the water, she gets... She gets it good. Yeah, well, like, there's a, I mean, is there something the, the, the shark is a strong moralizing force um, yeah. within the movie, and thus it lends the movie, I think, a, a, a pretty like conservative politic. Actually. The irony, yeah. well, the irony being though that it's 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 also the villain of the film. It's the protagonist, which I think hints at Spielberg's actual politics and position. Perhaps like he's not suggesting that Chrissy deserved to die in the beginning of the film because she's you know a free loving bohemian or whatever it's the fact that it's just this is the nature of this particular shark this is the nature of the character of the shark in the film and yes you can read into it as you were saying earlier tj if if spielberg's not trying to like actively assign interpretations in the film the shark is left to the audience to interpret as they will and this is one of the one of the top, I think, interpretations people have taken away from the film. And Spielberg is not going to argue against it. He's aware of it while he's making the film. He's fully aware of it. Do we want to talk about the shark metaphor yet? Or is there still more stuff you want to cover before the shark metaphor, TJ? No, I don't care. Either way. All right. Give give it to me. Okay, so I'm borrowing heavily from um, two important sources. One is uh, Then and Now, which is a a podcast and it's a YouTube video channel that... um, basically discusses philosophy and an episode that they brought in specifically on Jaws and about the work of Slavoj Žižek, 
um, who's a contemporary uh, Marxist philosopher. And he made a film called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. And in there, he talks about a lot of films, one of them being Jaws, right? So uh, what, what Zizek's doing is he applies a psychoanalytic approach to ideology. For him, ideology isn't an external force that organizes history, like Marx might say, it's ideology is consciousness. Um, and so the way Zizek wants to read Jaws is that, and one of the reasons why it's so successful is he says it is capitalist, American capitalist propaganda and done really, really, really well. Um, he points to the fact that Fidel Castro loved the movie. Um, mm. And Fidel Castro, and not as the only way, like it's not like Fidel Castro is like a great, literary theorist, but um, that he read it as look at all of these privileged, affluent white people getting just torn apart as they're, you know, the upper, the upper class here getting torn apart by this outside source. And uh, before I get further, cause I, I, I want to avoid monologuing as best as possible. You all's thoughts on just that initial kind of whiplash reading of the ideology of the film. Well, we got to talk about the mayor, right? Yeah, we'll get to the mayor, definitely. Yeah, well, like, you kind of mentioned that, like, with the moralizing in the shark, there's, like, a slight conservative bent to that aspect, but I I, I think that, um, I'm gonna be careful here, but <laughs> the mayor character is, uh, mayor he Vaughan. wants to keep the beaches open. He's Ron well, DeSantis. He, he, well, hold on. He wants to keep the beaches open for the sake of the economy, and he does not take the issue seriously because it's happened to other people. But once it personally affects him because his kid was in the water during an attack, he suddenly wants to take the issue seriously. And I don't want to name names or name a specific party or a specific political leaning. But I think there are people in this country who don't take issues seriously if it doesn't personally affect them. And if it's happened to other people, it sucks for them. But once it personally affects them, they want something done. Well, or, or... I, I, I will name names. This was the Republican response to COVID. I mean, where the bigger the bigger problem is, how is it going to affect the economy? And you know what? People are going to have to die. And a million people died because we didn't take the threat seriously. Plus, that's, that is an interpretation. I did see a lot of screenshots of the mayor on Twitter in early COVID times. Um, and uh, hard to ignore the parallels. Yes. It's the 4th of July, too. So the idea of, like, it's freedom, it's my choice is in the background of all of that as well. It's also not just the mayor. Like when we, we, it's not just the mayor. It's the townspeople at that first meeting. After, are you going to close the beach? Yes. Yeah. You've got a woman in the background, in the in the, in the room, who's like, when as soon as he says it's just for twenty four hours, because Brody wants to close the beaches, and the mayor assures them it's only for twenty four hours, and some lady in the back of the room yells, twenty four hours. That's like three weeks, because it's Fourth of July weekend. This island runs on tourism. And this is the biggest weekend of the year. Everyone is most concerned with revenue and making sure that they're getting the bread and butter of their lives, right? They're, they're, they want the so money coming all, in. So that, that's why TJ, to your original question, that's not super surprising that Fidel Castro liked the movie. Uh, I'm not saying that the movie has, you know, socialists, a socialist bent either, but like, that's not surprising that he could read into that and be like, yeah. hey, good movie. I like this. I mean, it, I guess you. I mean, you can certainly use it to criticize capitalism to a degree. Again, there's that greed aspect. These people are so concerned with the economy, the local economy, and getting that that money in that they're preferring to be blind to the real threat posed by the shark. That said, it's also criticism. It's also a criticism of the human condition. Whether you're capitalist or socialist, or communist, uh, even a fascist, it doesn't matter. These people are reacting quite 
normally, I guess, if you if you are cynical about humanity, people are somewhat they're, they're selfish to a degree. They are concerned about their own. Yes. And as you were saying earlier, Josh, yeah, until it suddenly affects them and they realize that the, that threat can actually reach them, it's like, well, let's not rush into things. Let's not go overboard. Yeah. It's their problem over there, yeah. And this is another important point that, and we'll, we'll link to the video, but the video brings up is when uh, Jacques Lacan had a concept of consciousness as human consciousness needing, as Ken mentioned, you know, the human condition, needing fullness. But then there's the contradiction wherein we don't have that sense of control and fullness. And the beginning of the movie is, right, like you've got the well-meaning sheriff, the white picket fences, the biggest problems are the kids are karate chopping yes. the fence. You know, it's this idyllic, yeah. amity means friend after all, right? It's this sort of idyllic um, American paradise, but that can never actually exist. There's always this, this hole. There's always this missing thing. And so we project what it, that's why the shark is such an effective symbol it doesn't represent one particular thing. Therefore, it represents whatever we want to villainize, right? And some other interpretations were the atom bomb, Watergate, natural disaster, foreign threats, immigration, um, a whole lot of other things. Whatever it is that you want to see as threatening this idyllic paradise. Hillary Clinton, if you're Mike Huckabee. Uh, right, okay, well, whatever it is, right? And, and so it becomes a sort of mortalizing force. In the book, not in the film, there is a character that's like, this is God. God's wrath. Um, mm. This is God's wrath, right? Now, one thing, if I can read from the book for like a page-ish. Um, yeah. The book makes it much, makes the sort of like capitalist critique much clearer in terms of who the victims are in a way that the movie I don't think does. Uh, for a movie about amphibians or <laughs> sea life eating <laughs> people and, and punishing them for being basically rich white douchebags, see Piranha 3D. Um which honestly mm. is, a, is a pretty swell movie. But here. Yeah. Teenagers lay serried in tight symmetrical rows. The boys enjoying the sensation of grinding their pelvises into the sand. Thinking of. This is in the book? This yes. Is, this is in the book now? Yes. Okay. Thinking of pudenta genitals and occasionally stretching their necks to catch a brief glimpse of some exposed wittingly or not by girls who lay on their backs with their legs spread. Ugh. These were not Aquarians. They uttered none of the platitudes of peace nor pollution, of justice or revolt. Privilege had been bred into them with genetic certainty. As their eyes were blue or brown, so their tastes and consciousnesses were determined by either generations. They had no vitamin deficiencies, no sickle cell anemia. That's oddly racialized, okay? It is. Their yes. teeth, thanks either to breeding or to orthodontia, were straight and white and even. Their bodies were lean, their muscles toned by boxing lessons at age nine, riding lessons at 12, and tennis lessons ever since. They had no body odor. When they sweated, the girls smelled faintly of perfume. The boys smelled simply clean. None of which is to say that they were either stupid or evil. If their IQs could have been tested en masse, they would have shown native ability well within the top 10% of all mankind. And they had been were being educated at schools that provided every discipline, including exposure to minority group sensibilities, revolutionary philosophies, ecological hypotheses, political power tactics, drugs, and sex. Intellectually, they knew a great deal. Practically, they chose to know almost nothing. They had been conditioned mm. to believe, or if not to believe, to sense that the world was really quite irrelevant to them. And they were right. Nothing touched them. 
Not race riots in places like Trenton, New Jersey or Gary, Indiana. Not the fact that parts of the Missouri River were so foul that the water sometimes caught fire spontaneously. Not police corruption in New York or the rising number of murders in San Francisco or revelations that hot dogs contained insect filth and hexachlorophyne caused brain damage. They were inured even to the economic spasms that racked the rest of America. Um, I refuse to believe this is just one page. You said you're going to read one page. That's got to be... It's about a page and a half. Is that one page? Undulations in the stock markets were nuisances noticed, if at all, as occasions for fathers to bemoan real or fancied extravagances. Okay, I think we get it. Unless there's another thing you want to get to there. That's it. Okay, a few things. Three things, really. Number one, that opening reminded me so much of Freddie Quell from The Master. That's basically just Freddie Quell lying on the beach, uh, probably boning the sand. Number two, I'm glad that I did not read the book because that was exhausting <laughs> i would have been exhausted by reading the book and three you make a good point about who the victims are and who these people are he made a very long-winded point uh, i think i got it at the p- picket fence teeth but it's interesting that that's who uh is that who he's identifying as the victims of the shark well that's he's he's laying out the beach scene and these are the people that are there mm-hmm. and he specifically names they all wear lacoste right and hooper mm-hmm. is one of those part of the reason why uh brody um resents him is that he's this like new england privileged attract in the book he's attractive didn't make it into the film uh he wears lacoste and all the ladies are like super into hooper like everybody wants to sleep with hooper did you mean quint or in the book does brody dislike hooper no no in the book there's there's this uh boiling resentment between brody and hooper uh, that okay. doesn't yeah that in the in the movie turns into like a quint versus hooper thing which has a lot to do with technology versus tradition experiences versus expertise in the book the reason they have uh brody i think so upset about hooper is because hooper is young and virile and brody keeps talking about oh i'm 40 now and oh my back hurts and all of this and he's sort of like uh feels somewhat like castrated by hooper's version of masculinity uh, and Hooper ends up sleeping with Brody's wife, which is kind of wild. Um, that is wild. And I'm, gl- I'm glad they cut that. <laughs> yeah, all of that is taken yeah. out of the film. And then there's a whole thing where Hooper lies about being with somebody else, and then they find out she's a lesbian. So they're like, you couldn't have been sleeping with so-and-so. She's a lesbian. It's really, really weird. Um, oh, 1970s sexual politics. This is Peter Benchley going on a bunch of tangents, it sounds like, in the book. Um, well, it- and then... If I can have one one more thing, and I, I know I've been talking too much right now, but uh, the reason why, and this is, I think is crucial, the movie does it way better. The reason why Brody does not want to close the beaches is because the previous summer, there was a string of serial rapes done, as it mentioned several times, by probably a young black man, and he like didn't take care of it soon enough, and they think that if there's... If they close the beach and it draws media attention, they're going to find out that, like, they never caught this rapist. It's really mm. bizarre. Um, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. That is weird. Well, like we said, I think that, you know, they – sounds like they're probably smart to do away with the book for the first two-thirds and only basically borrow the, the plot setup and then the orca stuff with the three men on the boat at the end. That's And then the rest of the book is kind of tossed aside. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, and Quint – Quint appears briefly at the end of one chapter and then just in part three. And um, I will say Spielberg, I mean, 
you have to remember the setting kind of establishes the fact that while there are obviously there are lots of fishermen in the movie, there's plenty of working class people depicted in the film. In fact, probably more so than is emphasized maybe in the book. I don't know. I'll let TJ comment Real on that. Real quick, my, one of my one of my favorite line reads of all time. Speaking of which, when Hooper says it's a tiger shark, oh, in the what? Goes, what? Oh what? <laughs> a plus, iconic, legendary. Oh, what? Continue, Ken. Sorry. So the fact is, though, this is. I mean. Amity Island is supposed to be like Nantucket. It's, in fact, there's a reference to Nantucket. It's like Martha's Vineyard. These are islands, while the people who live on them, there are plenty of working class people. They are escapes for people in New York and Boston. And in fact, at, uh, the, the, the blonde guy at the beginning of the film, whose name is now escaping me, the one who's chasing Chrissy, when we meet him the next day and Brody's walking with him, he, is, he lives on the island, but his parents basically summered there and they live in Greenwich. It's a subtle hint. Spielberg is not making is not making any overtures to who they, they make are. The distinction between islanders and tourists. They use the term islanders, people who were born and raised there. Yes, yes. and that you can and, never become an islander no matter how long you're there, right? Yes. Well, yeah, because Brody is trying to. I mean, Brody's coming from New York. He's a cop in New York who's moved here because he thinks it's supposed to be simpler. Everything's supposed to be nicer. And, and it is until it's not right. Well, which is kind of coming. That there's a connection to what we were talking about earlier. The fact that that this this threat can reach you anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. This it's all an illusion. This ideal paradise. The fact is, Brody's getting away from the big city with the crime and everything like that. He's coming here to this island, and there's still danger here to the point that when he tells his wife in the hospital later on, where the, when their son is being treated for shock. Take, why don't you take the younger one home? Her response is, home New York? And he's like, no, mm-hmm. home here. Because, yeah, suddenly she wants to she wants to go back to the city. And it's it, used against him several times. Like, hey, it's your first summer here. Do you really want to close the beach? Like this idea of uh, whenever you're not doing what we think is in the best interests of the community, it's because you don't understand you're not one of us. The first half of the film really emphasizes how out, how much of an outsider he is. I mean, even the scene when they all come to try and talk with him on the ferry, he is all by himself over uh, to the left-hand side of the screen, left-hand side of the ferry, and all of the other guys... It's a great shot. It is. It's a great, great Spielberg wonder. Everyone is on. Everyone is to the right of him, staring him down, and the, the, the scene does come, become closer. He zooms in. Shot by shot. They clo- no, they move close to the camera. The blocking. The guys move close to the camera. Until it's just until it's just focused on on the mayor and Brody. But Brody's all by himself while they're all staring him down in the ferry, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because he's the only one taking the position that he he's taking, and he's not aware, as they assure him, of how things are done. Yeah, what emphasizes his powerlessness there, too, is, one, he's on the water, and they say usually he sits in the car when he has to take the ferry. But they're motionless, and yet the ferry is still moving. So despite him digging his heels in, the the mechanisms of the community are going to going to keep the beaches open. And, and, diz- and to a dizzying degree. It's, off, it's arguably throwing him off, because the ferry turns. If you're paying attention, the ferry turns around because there's only one way. The ferry, I guess, only has one way on or off for the vehicle, but it turns about. As it turns, Brody kind of like, he doesn't do a 180 in his, his, but he's kind of convinced during the turning of the ferry, like, ah, we should close the beaches. And then the mayor's like, you, you yell shock. We got a panic on the 4th of July. And then Brody's like, ah. Which to this day, every time I watch the the, the medical examiner to this day drives me nuts. How, how could you possibly 
be convinced by the medical examiner at that moment. Eh, it might have been it, a boat propeller. Could be. I don't know. Boat propellers. Yeah, they tear up that girl. Sure. Puts his, crosses his arms. He's kind of got that, like, you know, uh, you know upon, upon educated second consideration, uh, it could have been. Yeah. Like, he's got this yeah. kind of, like... I love that Hooper comes in and, like, one of the first things he says, he, like, he, he glares at the medical examiner. This was no boat propeller. Yes, exactly. Subtext, you fucking idiot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. I love, too, when he's like, gentlemen, uh... He, he wants me to tell you that you're overloading that boat. I'm like, no, whatever. He goes, you're all going to die. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and there again is that the, the tension that is sort of the conflict for Hooper, which is, uh, no, he knows, he's studied, he's an expert, but you can't tell these people that that are reliant on their lived experience. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, which kind of comes to a head with Quentin Hooper, as you kind of alluded. Yeah, yeah. Earlier, yeah. Uh, do, you want, do you want to talk real quick about the performances? Because we're talking about Hooper. I just want to say that, like, I really like Hooper as a character. And, like, so there's two things that I always forget whenever I watch Jaws. Number one, how early they get to the boat. And number two, how much I like Richard Dreyfuss in this. Like, I like him an awful lot. Like, more than Roy Scheider or uh Can't take this Robert abuse Shaw. much longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like his character a lot. And uh, maybe it's because, like, I, I do have a couple of fancy college degrees. You know, so, like, maybe I just identify inherently with the uh, more academic character as opposed to the blue-collar worker and... Um, but I mean, what, what do you guys think? What do you guys think of uh, the three leads and everyone else? Well, to be fair, I think we're three educated individuals, and so we do we defer yes, to... You went to law school. TJ, you got a couple of master's degrees, I think. Yeah, I mean, we all, you know... The idea that we defer... We all spend a lot on our educations. We defer to experts when there are experts. Like, we trust people who study this stuff to get it right. They could, They can still be wrong, but we acknowledge the fact that if anybody is going to know what they're talking about, it's most likely those people. And so watching Hooper, it's so frustrating. Oh, what? It's so incredibly frustrating to watch him amidst this chaos. I mean, both times, when he first arrives in the dock and then when they bring in the shark later on. Like, there's this kind of chaotic jumble, which is, by the way, fantastic blocking by, by on Spielberg's part. Those scenes are brilliantly, brilliantly done. And Verna Fields, who we'll talk about in a little bit, her editing on both of those scenes are fantastic. But he's kind of coming in and out of those shots and he seems to be like the only one he's thrown off by the chaos he can't believe these people he's immediately the only one your eye draws to the first one your eye draws to many times in both of those scenes because he's kind of got that yes but or the um excuse me aspect because none of these people seem to know what they're doing they're just kind of reacting and doing what they instinctively always do and it's not enough here and he knows it and and this is part of i think what again makes this movie maybe unintentionally excellent is we can identify with him because of the trust the experts thing. Let's bring that back to COVID. Um, quick show of hands. If you disinfected your groceries at the beginning of COVID. Okay. I did. So did Ken. Uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, I did not. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I bought a UV wand and UV'd my keys and wallet when I got home from school. I went way over the top on this stuff because that's what they said to do. Right now, once we got more information, that, that's really silly now. Like, I tell that story and people think it's funny that I, like, stripped in the garage and threw my clothes in the washer before I came in the house, right? Um, here's what's really terrifying, at least to people like us. Scientists, rationality, logic, does what it can with the information that it has. And yet it doesn't mm-hmm. totally have all of that information. So you put Murray, the mayor, who's capitalism. You put Brody, the sheriff, who represents the functions of the state. And then you put science, Hooper, together. And the striking contradiction there is none of them really 
have the answer in the face of this unknown. The one person that's able to get them to actually confront the unknown is the person outside of that paradigm, which is Quint. And, yes. and Quint works because Quint doesn't belong there. I want to mention earlier when we were talking about capitalism that, like, yeah, there is some critique, I guess, of, like, the mayor's mindset for sure. But also, like, Quint demands $10,000 to kill the shark. Like, it's not, like... Well, let's not say that this is like a, a noble moneyless adventure here. He's definitely a part of it. And not just the money. He he demands what a caviar, apricot brandy, bow-legged women, a mm-hmm. uh, a color television, right? <laughs> yes. So yeah. he he he's outside of it, but he's also a part of it. He knows the worth of his labor. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um yeah. and um so it, part of the inherent contradiction is that like there is no escaping these structures, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and real quick, I, I know we can talk more about like the dynamic of Quint and how he fits in, but just uh, in terms of the performances, uh, Robert Shaw was apparently um, he 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 had you know his demons in real life, and I think he was like drunk for a lot of this. Shit. He, he he suffered from alcoholism, yeah, big time. Yeah, and and I I think that I read that uh, the brilliant brilliant scene where they're comparing scars, and he tells the story of the USS Indianapolis, which is just an all time scene in any movie that's so good. Um, apparently the first time they shot that he was like drunk when they shot it and he, uh, didn't feel like he shot that scene up to his potential because he was intoxicated. So he like kind of went crying to Spielberg that night or the next day and said, Hey, can I, can I try it again? Like I, I did not give him my best. In a documentary on the film made probably almost 20 years ago now, Richard Dreyfus describes the, the, the night that they did the first, they tried doing it the first night, that first shot shoot of that scene. He said, I was convinced we were never going to leave. Like the, the, the night would never end because Quint had asked Spielberg or suggested to Spielberg, you know, I need to get, I'd like to get into character. I think I should probably have a little bit to drink. Cause they are drunk. The characters are Correct. drunk for this. They're scene. supposed yeah. to be, yeah, they're supposed to be drunk and they're supposed to be intoxicated to varying degrees. But Spielberg was like, yeah, sure. Unfortunately, because Robert Shaw is an alcoholic. Now, granted, he was like, to put it into perspective, when I say alcoholic, He's from the group of guys like uh, Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton and Richard Harris. These kind of hard partying, rough. Yeah, he was in he was in the, in his fifties in the nineteen seventies. So he's a certain and, part of a certain way. And well, they they the guys who hung out in pubs until like six in the morning. Like the, these, they, they yeah. have bar fights and talk shit. And you know, Josh's people. He can't. Hey now. You know, what college did you go to again? Uh, I went to the University of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish. Fighting Irish. Sorry, continue. And Shaw, being an alcoholic, can't have just a little bit of alcohol to get into character. He's just drinking all night. And yeah, so they had to redo this. They had to redo the scene. And Shaw's also, by the way, um, dealing with personal trauma at this time. His wife died a month before they started shooting. So yeah, his wife at the time she also uh, fighting alcoholism at the time. She opening night of a play in London. She they did they had a great night. She came home and unfortunately accidentally overdosed. And the combination of the Mm. the pills she took and the alcohol, she didn't wake up. Well, I I did read that Richard. I'm sorry, Robert Shaw himself also died uh, fairly suddenly just three years after this. 1978. He's, he, he was just driving in Ireland and pulled over because he had a heart attack, I believe, on the side of the road. I mean, he was like 51. He lived in uh, he lived in Ireland for like most of the 70s, I think. He had moved there. And uh, yeah, he died. He died of a massive heart attack, most likely al- 
brought on by his alcohol, his excessive alcohol and or excessive drinking. He died at fifty-one, which means he was forty-seven when they made this. Uh, I would have believed he was sixty-five. Granted, you know, people looked a little older in the seventies. Like uh, the mom, Alex Kinter's mom, who apparently <laughs> is uh, young enough to have a ten-year-old son, looks like she's fifty-five. Uh, so again, I don't know what, was, what they were putting in the water in the seventies. But yeah, that, I mean, just, that's a weird uh, thing. Like every school I've taught at, when you look at the old, like the people that graduated in like nineteen sixty-five, I'm like. When were the seniors 35 years old? Like, they, they all look older than I am now. Like, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, Robert Shaw, um, again, he has demons. And he, he yeah. I think, probably may have been prematurely aged by uh, the, the kind of life he lived. But um, uh, still give your performance. Iconic performance. Yeah, he's point. awesome. And Roy Scheider's great in this, too. He really, really is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Richard Dreyfus is my is my favorite, but Roy Scheider, uh, yeah, definitely. Shot I think him. I think Shaw probably because of that one scene gives my favorite performance in the film, just because he he really goes goes all out. But there's a there's a pathos as well to his character that I think only Shaw can really deliver in this film. It, I mean, a successive excuse me, a successful career Shaw had. Granted, he died relatively young at fifty one. He's been doing film and theater for years. Very well respected. This is the movie everyone... This is the production performance everyone remembers it for. And it's because he knocks it out of the ballpark. Dreyfus and, and, and Scheider are two... Ter- they're, they're creating a terrific uh, dynamic, though, with him throughout the film. It, uh, it occurred to me just now, those three, the triangulation of those three, are not that dissimilar from the three in Jurassic Park. Hmm. You know, being Grant, Malcolm, and Ellie Sattler. Yeah, or? yeah. That you have like, okay. like the younger expert, the kind of like, uh, no nonsense, more kind of like reserved rule guy, and then the like goofy wild card. You know, um, but there, man, I have no point us? other than who, it just who, who, in my head. who of us is the who of us is the Shaw, the Quint, and the Brody? <laughs> I think I Ken's always... definitely the Quint. Like definitely. really, I always identify yeah, that's, with. That's the only thing I'm sure. When of. I watch this film, I always identify with Brody more. I was going to say, I was going to guess Ken was Brody. I'm, I'm sure Ken is Brody, mm-hmm. yes. And TJ, considering we have TJ's Literature Corner, that probably makes you implicitly Hooper. Does that just leave me Quint? I'd be Quint? You need a oh, no, That's kind of rough. Okay. That's fine. You just need to get I mean, I'm, I'm drunk right now, so I can be Quint. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not drunk. I'm, I am over-caffeinated. Sure. Um, yes. Well, can we talk a little bit with Quint here? Um and the important way that he functions, and this will get into Josh's question about Quint and his death drive. Demise? Yeah. His what now? Death, yeah, okay, yeah. Death I do drive. want to talk about his death, but we can, yeah, we can talk about that after your spiel here. Go ahead. Um, he is, he is inherently, like, tied to the Leviathan, okay? Mm. Um, he is a water person, and just the way that he's outside, he's the only one that really works to combat this monster. Uh, there's a wonderful Nietzsche quote I thought of. He said, battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. And so Quint, in the novel, less so in the movie, but in the novel, he is very much an Ahab figure. He's like six foot four. He has a limp. Um, he he dies at the end, as this Quint does. But the, and I promise it's only a paragraph, um, Brody put his face into the water and opened his eyes. Through the stinging saltwater mist, he saw the fish sink in a slow and graceful spiral. So it doesn't blow up, it just sinks, like Moby Dick does. Uh, trailing behind it the body of Quint, arms out to the sides, head thrown back, mouth open in a mute protest. So he, like, is tethered to the shark as it dies, which yeah. is exactly the way Ahab dies. And then 
uh, Brody's the only one left. Hooper dies. The shark gets in and chomps him in half in his little shark cage. Uh, and Hooper's hanging onto a cushion just the way that Ishmael's hanging on to Queequeg's coffin at the end. Uh, right. it's, it's like... I never read Moby Dick, so you just spoiled for me that Ahab dies. Thanks a lot, T. <laughs> uh-huh. Every, everyone dies but Ishmael. And everyone dies in the book. But... We'll, we'll come back uh, and edit in a spoiler alert for everybody listening. Yeah. You're going to miss the amazing chapters about the taxonomy of whales. Um, but so so <laughs> he, he exists as this sort of like... Uh, like a Harry Potter Voldemort thing where it's like one exists for the yes. other and one cannot go on while the other survives sort of thing. But then they like both have to die. Um, it's, it's mythically interesting to me. Yeah. So um, I, I posed a question. The outline is like, is, is so Quint dies very dramatically. And I kind of pose a question like, did he, not that did he want it to happen, but like he kind of seems to have the attitude of like either we're both gonna die or like mm-hmm. I, I don't know I don't know what to say exactly, but like I, I, t- can you mention that like you notice new things every time you watch this? You've seen this far more times than I have, but I just noticed this most recent watch, most recent watch, probably an obvious moment for a lot of people who've seen the movie a lot, but for me it was new. Uh, he mentions during his story of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, I will never put on another life jacket again because. During like a 24-hour stretch, 1,100 men went in the water, 300 men came out, and they were all picked off one by one by sharks. Um, so he says, I will never put on another life jacket again. Moments before his death, uh, when the shark is – the jaw shark is ramming the orca boat, he – there's a specific moment where he looks at a life jacket and meaningfully does not put one on, but he tosses one to Hooper and Brody. And so uh, is he planning to go down with the ship at this point? You know, is it his intention to, you know – I don't. What do you guys think? I don't know necessarily that it's his intention. I think he was aware of the fact that it might come to that, but I yeah. think his death his death scene is his death is not that of a man who's ready to go in that moment because That's he has not That's finished true. doing what it is he he set out to do. He wants to kill that shark. Nothing. I, I don't think anything pisses Quint off more probably than the fact that that it's got to be Brody. Who ends up taking care of the shark? Quint wants the shark. He wanted to go do it on his own. He didn't want any help. He he's on an ego trip as well as a revenge mission. Like he's been waiting thirty years to get this chance to get back at a a serious creature of the deep, a serious shark. And I'm not sure that he has a death wish, so to speak. I just think that I've I've always taken. Quint to be an individual who is comfortable enough with who he is and knows or probably would prefer sure to die at sea if the ship's going down kind of thing yeah he might go down yeah he doesn't need the life vest because whatever happens happens but he has a mission to fulfill and he definitely wants to accomplish what he wants to set out to accomplish before he's he's gone and that which is why that death is i think all the more shocking not just the way they do it that scene, his death scene, it is shocking, not just because it's so visceral, but also because he clearly is realizing how, how he's been defeated by the very thing that he set out to, to kill, to terminate. He's been utterly defeated, and in fact, within the film, not only is Brody the one who kills the shark, he does so using Hooper's pressurized scuba tank, right? So without... Mm-hmm. Without Brody and Hooper, the shark's not dead. 
Quint, the one who was committed, the one who was most motivated to kill this thing, uh, he he doesn't succeed. He ends up being brought down by the shark. The shark defeats him. That's a great point about like the mixture of both of their technologies, and then it having to be the sheriff, right? Right. That that wields the gun. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, anything else on Quint's death or new topic, TJ? Well, this is slightly related to just Quint in general and some of the things we were saying about like his role and how he's kind of inextricably tied to the shark. It also takes us back a little bit to what the shark stands for. Um, in, the, in the book, page 117, that one lady says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? I beg your pardon? Book of Job, said many. No mortal man's going to catch that fish. Why do you say that? We're not meant to catch it. That's why. We're being readied. For what? We'll know when the time comes. Later then in the book, Brody starts to think, maybe this lady's right that this is some sort of, like, theological, like, you know, creature of the deep sort yeah. of thing. I think that's one of the things that's so, that that works for, like, why this is so intriguing and terrifying is this idea that, like, there's more in the ocean that we don't know about. Like, there's whole portions of the ocean and what lives in there that we have no idea about. And so it kind of represents this, like, vast abyss um, and it is it is kind of biblical. So using that Leviathan, Leviathan is like the the sea creature from the Old Testament. It pops up in Isaiah and Job, as you know, God says, "Where were you when I created the Leviathan?" To to Job, as a way of saying, "Look, I created this terrifying creature of destruction, and yet it was also something that was then like created by the All Good God." Uh, Thomas Hobbes named his book that he wrote on government Leviathan. And he uses it in there as this metaphor of like, you know, strength and power, but also of the like the total power of the sovereign state, um, keeping people sort of keeping people in order. And I think what's interesting is like the shark and jaws functions as a leviathan, both biblically, but both, but but also in the sense that that Hobbes refers to it, because as we said earlier. Um, the the real danger the shark does is the way in which it like destabilizes the community. Yeah, it undercuts the power of the state. Right, right. You know, um, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was just kind of an interesting thing that I thought like it also kind of takes us back to the the many like interpretations that we had of what it what it could stand right. for earlier. Um, yeah. Were you guys yeah, yeah. aware afterward of how? shark populations were horribly depleted after this movie i've heard this do you have data on this i have some data since the release of jaws in 1975 populations shark populations have fallen catastrophically over the last half decade populations of sharks and rays have decreased by 71 percent more than 100 million sharks are killed each year and over 30 percent of all shark and ray species are considered threatened here's what's wild Mm. uh Sharks in in movies, which we talked about earlier, the only like nice one is in Finding Nemo. Uh, and um, it's only kind of nice. Yeah, and in twenty twenty, Shark Tale, Marty Scorsese's. That's shark true. Tale. That's true. Yeah. Uh, in twenty twenty, there were thirteen shark related fatalities worldwide, ten of which were unprovoked. So the likelihood of encountering a shark is lower than that of being struck by lightning. And uh, this McCarran put it this way: You're more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker than to be bitten by a shark. Um, so there, there's something, and I'm, I don't think it's totally blamed on this movie. I think it's blamed on what this movie's tapping into, which again is this sort of like deep seated fear of this like unknown 
vast creature. Um, yes, yes, yes. But it's it's it has galvanized people. I mean, I I, I will say real quick that uh, so uh, I live in Los Angeles, so I'm I'm the only person who lives near an ocean of the three of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife and I saw Jaws in the big screen last Fourth of July last oh, year. Oh wow! I was played played at the Aero Theater, the American Cinematheque. Shout out to the American Cinematheque, and. That same day, I was reading the LA Times, and they were showing a story about how a few great whites showed up in Orange County, like about 50, 100 yards out from the shore. And I was like, of all days for me to read this, this is the last day that I'm going to be reading about great white sharks in Orange County. So impeccable timing, LA Times. Just chef's kiss. Thank you. This, there is As irrational as it is. There, there's also just an inherent fascination, I think. Jaws kind of just reminded us how, I guess, interesting sharks can be they are terrifying and yet fascinating in part because they are our only real predator in a place that we can only encounter them by choice we're not native to the ocean we're not native to the water obviously we have to choose to go into their arena and they are our only real sharks are our biggest predator in the water. They're the thing we're most terrified of, at least. They're not necessarily, yeah. in actuality, the thing that kills the most people in, from the ocean, but they're the thing we're most terrified of and because the, they are the, the apex or, predator. Orcas, orcas don't really get close to shore. Right. And, and they, they don't. At least Americans don't really encounter hippos very often, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. so, well, and the, the, th- the thing you said, Ken, though, about how they're like terrifying and fascinating, I think that combination of the, the perverse is what's really at the core of this. It's 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 the same thing that like if you get near the edge of a cliff and you're like, oh I just have to look over, you know, but also I'm scared of falling. Or that thing where you watch a car accident, you know, you like look as you drive by. Like these are things that you should be repulsed by, but we're like weirdly drawn into at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no question that Jaws, as Josh you brought up at the beginning of our conversation, the effect I think is kind of it's kind of instinctive in human beings. They went to see this movie, they were terrified by it, and what they were terrified by interested them to the point that suddenly it exploded. Uh, and you get Shark Week, and yet, also to CJ's point, you get people wanting to kill sharks because, well, they're terrifying. De- devastation to the ecosystem, yeah. And I have a right to defend, I have a right to defend myself from these terrible threats. Uh, even though they're not really all that actually threatening on a regular basis to human Smile, beings. Smile, you son of a bitch. Yes. Which they play at the Blues games when we play the San Jose Sharks. Um, yes, yes, but, they do. That's uh, a good touch. Can you want to say something earlier about the editing? Well, I, you, there, this film doesn't work without John Williams, but also doesn't work without Verna Fields. And granted, Spielberg also must be credited with the editing. He and Fields were working closely together. Um, in fact, when she was editing while they were on Martha's Vineyard, so like I think the first half of the film she pretty much edited on the go while they were filming. Um, it's the back half of the film, primarily all of the stuff that was filmed on the, on the ocean, uh, that they had to wait to bring back to California, and she edited at home. She edited at her home. Uh, in fact, a little bit of movie hit- trivia for those who don't know: the scene in which uh, they find. Uh, the remains of of uh, Ben uh, Ben Stowe, uh, uh, the the fisherman, the local the guy fisherman. in the boat, the head, the floating, the floating head in the boat. When they find his boat, that scene with with uh, Hooper underwater was filmed in Vernafield's swimming pool uh, at night. Oh wow! And they dumped, I think, milk into the pool to create a cloudy effect, the nighttime cloudy effect. Well, I I, I did read that. 
was that filmed after they already did a test screening, possibly? Uh, I read something that kind of suggested that. I don't. Maybe. I don't know if they filmed the scene after. What What I read was that they tested it with an audience, and Spielberg heard the reaction to the um, the famous shark appearing behind Brody when he's he's chumming the water. The shark jumps up, and he says, "You're going to need a bigger boat." The The audience reaction to that moment convinced him they needed another jump scare moment. So then they added in the uh, fisherman head in while Hooper's, you know. Uh, scuba diving scene. And we don't need to tell people who were there at the time, but if you were in theaters at the time, it was not uncommon for theaters to stop the film at that point, turn on the lights, and ushers would come up and down the aisle and check to make sure nobody had fainted or had a heart attack. Jesus. It actually it actually <laughs> scared people so badly that theaters wanted to make sure that they did everything possible to prevent being sued by somebody yes. who needed to be warned or taken care of immediately. You're talking about the the floating head scene. Yes, right? I'm talking. Yes, that, that correct. Scare? Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's the scene. Um, it is wildly scary. <laughs> yeah, when I screened it in film class, like that elicited quite a reaction. The chumming bit, not as much, but the the head freaked. Well, people the chumming out. bit's also one of the most famous scenes in in movie history. I'd say. Okay, so a few things. Um, I also read. Speaking of the chumming scene, that you're gonna need a bigger boat scene. I read that they like added a little bit more daylight between the shark appearing in the water and him delivering that line. Because according to Spielberg, like the audience was like vocally rowdy having seen the shark pop up. And so they were, they couldn't hear Brody's you're going to need a bigger boat line. So they added more film in between those two moments, just a few seconds, just to like give them time to settle down to hear that line Mm. is what I heard. Uh, Second thing. um, I want to talk about negative space real quick. And, like, you guys both probably know about this better than I do, but the use of negative space in three consecutive shots in that moment is so, so effective. Uh, Negative space being, like, an area of the frame where there isn't anything, and, like, it kind of creates attention because, like, our brains want there to be things in the empty space. So, like, um, you're kind of, it's kind of priming you to expect something to pop into that space, right? Particularly uh, when the the frame is imbalanced. If you have center compositions, then it's not as much, but if you have, um, it heavily weighted on one side of the frame or the other. We are expecting something to be filled into the other side. Yeah, and so like Brody chum in the water, he's like heavily to the right side of the frame, I believe, mm-hmm. and the left side of the frame mm-hmm. is pretty empty. He's in the foreground, the background is empty, and then suddenly a shark appears on the left side in the background. So, and it's a very surprising, but also like your brain's like kind of half expecting it to some extent because of the negative space. And then the very next shot is. Um, it's not just a shot of Brody. It's a shot of nothing, but he rises into the frame. So he fills, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty much instantaneous, but it is it is a distinct choice to create a second consecutive shot of negative space. Then the third shot after that is Robert Shaw in like the cabin part that, again, negative space that Brody slowly backs into mm. and then says you're going to need a bigger boat. So it's three consecutive shots of like negative space being filled, uh, however quickly. In, in the first two, it's very quickly. In the second, third, it's not. Mm-hmm. But um, and then obviously the the the, the fisherman, the floating head, uh, Hooper approaches. The, there's a hole in the hull of the boat that he approaches. And it's like dark, and then suddenly a head appears, and that's like um, it's filling the negative space. That is why it's very surprising. I, I think as a compliment to that earlier in the film, the scene where the Kinter boy dies um, with the with the editing, Fields cuts on people passing in front of. Yes. Of the camera, right? Every every cut, even if it's just like in a little bit further, closer, um, it's on people passing in front. And so there's almost like an overload of information in that in that place. And you you really get the sense like Brody is where it's kind of like 
get out of the way. I'm trying to see something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they, they do a, 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 I think it's called a, is it a diopter where like there's something in the foreground and something in the background. And like what they physically do is cut the frame in half yeah. and like actually splice two shots together. Um, They do that a few times mm-hmm. when he's like, the guy's trying to talk to him about like a, a local problem he's having, like his garbage can or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like he's in Brody's like just not paying attention at all, looking over his shoulder at the people in the water. Um, And that's a great point, TJ. That's exactly what I was going to say is like the whole point of that scene is like, Brody being a watchful eye, and he can't watch everybody, mm-hmm. and there's too many distractions, and so he's gonna, and he does miss something. He misses out. It's just death, but um, that's that's good stuff. That's a yeah. use of, I guess, do we call that a brilliant use of what is it, diegetic cutting or diegetic editing? I guess she's using the she's using the people cutting passing across the screen. I, I don't know if there's a term for it. Yeah, it's uh, none it's, of, none it's of a, professional editors. It's a match on action. So. Is I think what it would be go. called. Yeah. Um, yeah. To to that to that end though, fields. Uh, you watch earlier in the earlier in the film. There's this. There's that scene where Mrs. Kent, or, or actually, it's, it's actually after that. Excuse me. When Mrs. Kent, the scene where we see Mrs. Kintner later in all black, that whole scene starts out celebratory, and suddenly Hooper, it, 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 it's it's chaotic. There are people running around, as I was mentioning earlier. Spielberg really utilizes the the kind of lots of people talking over one another brilliantly but they're all celebratory they're all moving around they're kind of ignoring hooper kind of joking with him and, and putting him down because he's trying to explain the the like jaw diameter and the fact that it doesn't really fit and they're like don't give me any of that yeah. your science uh, mumbo jumbo and he's the one who has to pop the balloon for brody and the mayor the mayor at one point is in that shot. He brilliantly blocks by moving out of it. Brody starts to kind of move away then from Hooper, and Hooper has to like kind of reinsert himself back into the conversation to remind them. And slowly but surely they realize that they still have a problem. And by the end of the by the end of the scene, it's no longer celebratory, it's no longer chaotic, it's just everyone just muted when Mrs. Kintner yeah. is suddenly confronting him and he realizes he's messed up. He's screwed up. And he's feeling guilty, and suddenly we have a problem we still have to solve. This has nothing to do with anything, but just one other quick thing that I really like. In the town hall scene, um, when the guy's like, I have a question, Mayor. Is that money going to be in a check or cash? And that one lady goes, I don't think that's funny. I really don't. <laughs> she appears She appears later. She's swimming on the beach. She's swimming in the ocean yeah. on July 4th. Yeah. Seeming to have a great time. I think she's got a drink in her hand, but it's kind of like... She represents, I don't know, she's like a, she's the reporter. She's like the local town reporter or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, she's both critical of that, but at the same time, when they're entering into the meeting, she's one of the ones asking Brody and the mayor questions about, are you really going to close down the beach? Is that really like on the 4th of July? So she's on one hand question, like, are you, she's just like the townspeople. You can't possibly think that closing the beach is a smart idea. And at the same time, this isn't funny. This is serious. This, this the death of the Kintner boy is very serious. Well, spe- speaking of reporters, uh, Peter Benchley, the novelist, plays the guy with the microphone, like reporting from the mm. shores of Amity Island. Also, um, Carl Gottlieb is yeah. in the movie as well. Um, yeah, you said he was a news. I think he's the newspaper guy. Yeah, um, okay. he's got a much bigger role yeah. in the book. But um, there's a brilliant combination in the film of like character actors, people they brought in from New York and California, and then also locals. Like there are a lot of people from Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket who are in the film, including the actress who plays Mrs. Kintner. Uh, she's a local from the area, um, and uh, the one fisherman 
Uh, well, the, actually, the, the the guy who the the fisherman who dies. Uh, I'm now going to have to look up the character's name just because it's annoying me. He's... While you're doing that, while you're doing that, uh, so just a few random things that I wanted to spotlight. This has nothing to do with anything. Just like things I wanted to shout out. When Quint notices his line quick uh, clicking, and he like very slowly straps in, mm-hmm. and like uh, that's just such that's just such a good good moment, and like. Uh, um, I, he 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 puts the straps on the left side of his line. He puts his line like into the little holder thing. He sets his feet up against like the bracing board. And it's just that's just good shit. The, I, I the cut, know. the cut of his his foot on the 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 resting and just bending it. There's yeah. something pleasurable about yeah, that yeah. cut that that beats all yeah. that out. And then uh, the other another random thing I, I love that like he emphasizes so many times that like when they attach the barrels to the shark like. The barrels are going to keep him from from diving down to him because he's being buoyed up by the barrels that are attached to him. And they get three barrels on him. And he says at least two or three times, there's no way he can go under with three barrels. Not with three barrels. He can't go under. Not with three barrels. And then, like, the last time he says it, he, it cuts directly from him saying he can't go under again. Not with three barrels. The very next shot is, like, the boat in, like, kind of the mid-ground and then the three barrels in the foreground. And they just slowly get pulled under leaving like a wake in the water moving towards the boat and there's just stillness for a few seconds as the boat and the lack of barrels sits there it's just such an effective effective cut it, it kind of reminded me too of like just as a visual signifier um the same sort of thing in jurassic park with like the the tremors on the water you know mm-hmm. which yeah. doesn't totally make sense because it's not consistent throughout the rest of the film like about when the tremors happen and when they don't but it's just such an effective way to like forebode menace you know yeah 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 uh ken any like random things you just want to throw out there that we didn't get a chance to cover i just i do want to throw this out because again it's a fun fact but ben gardner is the the fisherman i was talking about he's the one they find whose body whose head pops out of the boat uh the actor who played him craig kingsbury was actually just a local on the island and is actually the guy that Robert Shaw met, talked with, and used to create the character of Quint. Local fisherman, kind of a rough, kind of a rough guy, and a bit of a local legend on the island. Apparently, he apparently spun yarn after yarn, yarn talking to Robert Shaw, and Shaw believed every cockadoodle story that was told to him and Shaw at one point went on television was interviewed about the film and suggested that there was a great deal of incest on the island of Martha's Vineyard (laughs) which obviously did not uh, please the locals on the island at the time but it turns out he had been told some kind of crazy story by Kingsbury who was I I, no doubt no doubt tickled to no end when he heard that on television sure 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 TJ, any uh, random stuff that didn't fit into the discussion you want to throw out there? Uh, not really, other than this is what a bad person I am. Um, and this happened with my okay. students as well. Uh, when the Kenter boy gets eaten, it's sad. But then I'm like, oh, good, the guy found his dog. <laughs> Wait, did he find his dog? Did the dog actually show up on shore? Oh, yeah. He does? Okay, yeah. I missed, yeah. must have missed that. I thought the shark got both the dog and Alex. No. Um, okay, so uh, last thing as we do on these episodes, or what I would like to do on each of these episodes, uh, how does this stack up against modern or historical Best Picture nominees? Um, did it deserve, quote-unquote, its Best Picture nomination? And would this be nominated today? And I think uh, it rules. It's one of the Best Best Picture nominees nominations ever. And yes, this would be nominated for Best Picture today, is my 
uh, answer to those three. Ken, what do you think? Oh, I, absolutely. This film deserved it, and it would have okay. it, it would it would it would have been nom- it should have been nominated. It was nominated. It would be nominated, I think, today if it was released because it's a smart, popular film. I mean, it's really really smart. It's really well made. Uh, the most infuriating aspect is probably simply that it got Best Picture nomination, but Spielberg wasn't nominated for director, which. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We actually have to talk about that real quick, but uh, I'm going to put in put in that put a pin in that for one second. Here's a question that I just thought of: Had Schindler's List not come out in 1993, could Jurassic Park have been nominated for Best Picture? Because it wasn't. I prefer that to this, but granted, I saw that at a young age. Like the way that you guys have the relationship with Jaws, you've watched it, you know, once a year for 20 years. That's me and Jurassic Park. So I like that movie more, but it was not nominated for Best Picture, obviously. Uh, the times had changed as well. Um, That's true. I, I mean, this yeah. was so. I, I think within context, it is somewhat of a, a strange Best Picture nomination in 75, even though it's an excellent film. But if you look back at those, there were also a lot of movies like um, Towering Inferno was nominated for Best Picture around that time. Um, disaster movies were big at the time, and this kind of is a disaster movie. Um, but it also it, it couldn't really being subtracted as a summer blockbuster because there wasn't a thing at the time as like summer blockbusters. So I don't know. It's a great movie. I don't think it would be nominated nowadays um, unless it was in the six to 10 because movies like this that were extremely popular summer movies don't get nominated, even though you could argue they're not as good as Jaws, except something like that, that did get nominated is something like Black Panther, but also a lot of that I think had to do with um, the kind of cultural representational significance around it um so no i i don't think it would be nominated i think nowadays. i do think it would because i'm i'm ex- i'm expanding the best picture field out to the 10 that we have today i think it would squeak in uh it, given the given the nature of the film it is so smart critics uh, critics loved the film they highly respected the film other filmmakers loved the film and audiences just ate it up I don't think that there is a segment within the Academy that would not have gone along with this film. And in fact, I say that because I think the direction in particular is so good. I think today this is the kind of film that would have been nominated for director, um, whether or not it wins Best Picture or not, or there, even if it's not nominated. I think this is one of those where it like gets a it, it either way gets a director nomination. It's unusual. He was nominated at the he, he was he was nominated at the Director's Guild Awards. I believe he was nominated at the Golden Globes. I think, but I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in one second. Keep going. Yeah, and it's uh, I think I think it still would hold up. In fact, I, to spin it out further, what you said about Jurassic Park, I think that there's an argument made, and I think a lot of people probably argued at the time Jurassic Park should have been one of the nominees. I mean, you've got like the Fugitive. Yeah. The Fugitive, I think, is one of the nominees that year, and Remains of the Day. Like Jurassic Park holds up long term much better than some of those other nominees. Not that they're terrible films by any means, but they're just... The Fugitive itself is a bit of a blockbuster, action-packed blockbuster. It it has to do a lot with what... uh, changing understandings of what, like, a best picture is, right? Right now, you're you're making the argument that... it, It has to do with, you know, changing ideas of what best picture is. You're making the argument right now about, like, the quality of the movie, but also there's an element, at least in the 90s, of, like, it has to be a prestige picture, you know, so Jurassic Park might have had a better chance of being nominated in 1975 than in 1993. You to, know? to Josh's point, it might have. I only say this because the, I, I know I remember. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Fugitive is one of the best picture nominees that year. The Fugitive is not really a prestige picture. 
it's an action th- it's an action thriller and it's more in the vein of Jurassic Park I think than certainly Schindler's List Remains of the Day or The Piano whatever else was nominated uh, that said I think to your point Josh yeah I think Jurassic Park probably probably gets might get nominated if not for Schindler's List the point being while I think times change and the definition of what what counts as a best picture changes I think it comes down to the politics within the Academy and the voters. And I think in this case, Jaws is one of those that did really impress voters then. And it would, it would impress the Academy voters today, maybe even more so. Yeah. So, so as I alluded, uh, the lack of best director nomination for Spielberg, uh, you guys have seen the video, I'm yes. assuming the behind the scenes, him watching the Oscar nomination, his office, yeah. nodding. Yes. Uh, you can YouTube this, you can search this, uh, Young Steven Spielberg, 26, 27 years old, uh, him and his friends had their Super 8 camcorder out the day that the Oscar nominations were announced, and they were, you know, in a very, you know, <laughs> 21st century move, watched, you know, recorded themselves reacting to the Oscar nomination announcements, and young Steven Spielberg seemed pretty convinced he was being nominated for Best Director, and when he was not nominated for Best Director, there's a great shot of Spielberg, his hands over his face, and he goes, I didn't get nominated, and he just seemed so distraught. <laughs> And um, it makes him look pretty bad. It makes him look pretty bad. I don't think it makes him look also like that bad. I actually don't think it lo- it's that well, he's, bad. He, he's in his mid twenties. It's fine. Um, but also like th- that kind of like I think the Academy has an interesting relationship with Steven Spielberg. I think because like they really did do one of those okay, yeah, you're good, but you need to you need to wait your turn things with Spielberg. Uh, that they're currently doing with Bradley Cooper. Not that Bradley Cooper is as talented as Steven Spielberg, but he's been nominated for 11 Oscars and hasn't won. Um, and, like, it took him, you know, 20-plus years after this to finally win Best Director. And, you know, then they gave it to him twice in five years. But, like, they did give him, like, a, yeah, you're you're good, but, like, let's 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 not get high on your own supply here, kid, a little bit. And uh, that may have started with the Jaws shirking of Best Director in 1976 so just to follow up i guess on what we uh, on my my position on that i would also make the argument that more people today we're living in a, in a world where most people in hollywood there's there's a lot more of them who were who went to film school right anybody went to film school anybody who's been more who's been better educated unlike in the 70s you still got the old school where they they didn't go to film school to learn how to do their thing Nowadays, you've got all these young punks who came in following that new that American New Wave era with Spielberg and Scorsese and Coppola and Lucas and all of those guys. I think you've got more of an appreciation for what's going on in Jaws, which is why I think it would still play well today. I, I, I think people would see it for what it is. It is a masterpiece of cinema. Also, it wins over the audience, right? It's It's also a... It's a massively successful piece of, of popcorn movie, popcorn cinema. Yeah, so it was nominated. It was ultimately nominated for obviously best picture, and also for uh, best film editing, best original dramatic score, and best sound. And it won those three others: uh, editing, sound, and score. It did not win best picture. I can't find it right here, but I read something earlier this week that this is like. It's only happened a few times where a movie has been nominated for best picture. And won everything it was nominated for except for the Best Picture Award. Can you guys think of anything offhand? I, I can't think of anything. I'm trying to find, like, what's in it more recently? Selma. Selma? Really? It was nominated for two Oscars, Best Song and Best Picture, and it won Best Song. Uh, 
Okay. Well, I think I think what you're getting there's at is, that... yeah, there's there are other films that have been nominated for multiple awards. I think one, several, if not all of the other ones they were nominated for, but then it didn't win the top prize. It's and I think it's, it's rare. It's cabaret it, one as well. I don't know. Again, I, I was trying to find like what movies have done it in addition to Jaws, but that is a, a nice piece of trivia. It was not for Best Picture, and it won everything it was nominated for besides Best Picture, and that's like weird. Now that you mentioned it, TJ, I think Cabaret. You might be right about Cabaret because Godfather won, and I think uh, I think that might be right. Cabaret took a lot of the other, oh, almost all of the other awards it was nominated for. Uh, before we leave, I want to make a quick correction, just because it it I was delayed in hearing what TJ said. And we moved on quickly. Pippet does die in the film. The dog. He does. Just to throw that out there. Yeah, yes. That's what, that's what yes, Pippet, because it shows the it shows the floating yeah. wood that he was he was eating. There's that scene. It just shows the oh. wood floating there. Pippet does. Pippet does die. Okay. Um, it's just scratch it's, what I said. Fuck this movie. It should not be nominated for best picture. Um, <laughs> it's a piece of trash. And go Barry Lyndon. I will say this much though. What does it say though about Spielberg or cinema or audience scores? All of the deaths in this movie, he does not show the dog's death. He does not show the, the, the shark getting the dog. It's just hinted at. And the fact that the dog doesn't oh. reappear. He shows all of the other deaths or results or the results thereof. As as TJ's alluding here, audience have a, audiences have a real hard time with dogs dying. I mean, see any sad movie about dogs and you'll know exactly. what I'm talking about. But the fact that like the fact that a ten year old kid dies in the scene in very bloody fashion, and teaches like, oh, oh, that's that's okay though, as long as the dog's okay. Oh, the dog died. Fuck this movie. Like that's telling. I, think. Uh, I I found a I did find a list of movies that won everything except Best Picture. Okay, what is it? Uh, lay, lay some on us. There's quite a few, so I won't name them all. But Bohemian Rhapsody went four for five. Oh no! The Blind Side won <laughs> Best Actress. Wait, was that? A, oh, that was, was that only two? This is a couple. Actress yeah, picture. Okay. Traffic went four for five. Um, well, that won Best Picture. No, oh, sorry, that did not no, Gladiator. I, th- I think Traffic. Or I think Training traffic Day was the was the movie that I was thinking of. That um, was Gladiator. It was Gladiator. Yeah. Three Coins and a Fountain, King Solomon Mines, uh, Letter to Three Wives, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Miracle on 34th Street, Adventures of Robin Hood, The Story of Louis Pasteur, I think, N- Naughty I think the Marietta. Stat that I, saw, <laughs> I think the stat that I saw, the movie that I was trying to find earlier, is, it was Traffic. Because Traffic, I think, was the first movie to do that since Jaws, to be nominated for multiple, including Best Picture, and win all except Best Picture. Because um, you mentioned um, you mentioned Selma, you mentioned yeah. Blindside and Bohemian Rhapsody. Those were all after the expansion to ten nominees. Oh, so that's in the true. five that's nominee true. era, yeah. Um, I wonder if there's a, is there anything? Can you see anything between Jaws and Traffic in that twenty five year? No, stretch? nothing, nothing. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Okay, so that's probably what I was reaching for is Traffic. Good movie, Traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, last question, then we can break. Should this have won Best Picture? I think that's a question for like two weeks from now, isn't isn't it? Yeah, I guess. I guess so. I guess we will have, to tease, we will probably have a shorter episode, not this length, about just like kind of recapping the movies of 1975. 75 movies, 76 ceremony, a distinction I'm already tired of making. Um, yeah, that'll be our last episode in the 1975 series. Just Any closing thoughts on Jaws? Ken Dusold, go. Just Well, just for audiences, I want to make it clear. Just so Josh doesn't have to keep saying that, just understand that the Oscar ceremony always follows the I'm year they're keep saying it. They're just to make it I'm clear. Keep just it. understand that. It, Jaws, I mean, I'm not going to hide the fact I adore Jaws. It's one of my ten favorite films of all time. I, I, Clearly, I described earlier, I've seen it 
so many, so many times, and I'll keep watching at least once a year going forward. I love the fact that while, yes, there are, you can kind of poke at a little bit the fact that it gave us the blockbuster, and we're no doubt going to talk more and more going forward about our opinions and, and kind of frustrations with blockbusters and where they've brought us and cinema to this point. The fact is, though, Jaws is the first real blockbuster, and yet it's doing less with more, something that we don't really equate with blockbusters nowadays. It's a smart, brilliantly directed uh, film, edited its reliance on editing and music, uh, unlike most blockbusters, that stands the t- it holds up. It stands the test of time. It is, as I made the argument earlier, I think it's timeless. It just works at all times. Uh, and will still be watched long after all of us are gone. So, yeah, Jaws is one of those all-time greats. I'm gonna I'm gonna live forever personally, so that won't, it won't be watched after I'm gone. TJ, final thoughts on Jaws? Like I said, I taught it one time. It taught really well, um, which to me says that it's something that is engrossing to people that aren't necessarily serious film people, but also there's... high schoolers. Right? You're talking about high schoolers in 2020. Ish yeah, country. yeah. Many of whom will tell you, I don't really watch many movies because they're too long. I can't sit through a two-hour mm-hmm. movie. Um, but they they enjoyed it, and yet there's also stuff there to teach about film history, film technique, etc. So I think it has a nice blend of um, populism and serious film people. I agree. Yeah, good movie. That's my final thoughts on Jaws. Good movie. Um, next week, are we doing Cuckoo's Nest? Is that next? Nashville. LMNO. We're, do, we're going alphabetical, so it's Nashville. Nashville. N before O. So next week will be Robert Altman's 1975, uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson-esque. <laughs> bad for me to say. Uh, Nashville. Yeah. So come back for Nashville. Hope you've enjoyed Jaws. Thank you for listening to Serious Film People, and uh, bye. Farewell. See ya. See ya.